developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 183. On today's show, we talk about Ice Age footprints, a Roman coin, and a new translation of an ancient script. Let's dig a little deeper into the ancient languages of early Iran. Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. Where are we today? Oh, I'm actually not sure. (laughs) I I mean, we're definitely in Montana, so we crossed back across the border today. Um, And we're next to some really lovely water with lots of trees and mountains. It's the Kootenai Lake or Reservoir or River or something. And we're near Rexford, Montana, just south of Eureka. Or just near Eureka. Yeah, yeah. Montana. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really cute little camping area. And we thought we were kind of screwed, actually, out of having a place to park. Because, you know, when you're boondocking, you got to have a couple options. And, like, the first one was a hard pass. It was full of people. Second one, same thing, hard pass past full of people <laughs> plus we didn't think to look but we didn't just assume that the first saturday in august in eureka was the like their quilt festival yeah so there's quilts and yeah. people everywhere yeah it's yeah. just the town was just packed today so yeah anyway yeah well, i guess we should have figured that given that it's summer and like random festivals happen all the time in summer but and yeah. here's to hoping we we get better luck with our boondocking spot hunting tomorrow because we're hoping to be near glacier national park tomorrow well maybe when we get done recording, we can go down by the lake, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little low, like all lakes are. Yeah, and maybe we can get our toes, walk in the walk in the muddy uh, uh-huh. beach there a little bit. Uh huh. And in twelve thousand years, some <laughs> idiot archaeologist can dig them up. <laughs> what? Why would you possibly be talking about that? <laughs> so you may remember a podcast. We actually discussed this in our episodes one forty one, one forty two series on on pre Clovis stuff. But there mm-hmm. were some footprints found not too long ago in White Sands, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Footprints in the sand, so to speak. Yep. And you know, hardened, of course, and. Some archaeologists doing some work on Hill Air Force Base in the Utah Salt Flats found some more. Yeah. I guess it was like the same guy who was working in White Sands, Thomas Urban. Yeah. He was brought to Hill Air Force Base to work on a different project, but he's kind of become some sort of like fossilized footprint expert or whatever. And he knows what he's looking for. So he found them. Yeah, he was working with Far Western Anthropological Research Group, which is a uh, it's a CRM firm. Yeah, uh, a pretty big yeah. CRM firm here on the West Coast. You know, they're based out of uh, I think Davis, California. Yeah, something and, like that. But they've got offices all around the the West, and they do actually they do a lot of big projects, uh, a lot of big infrastructure projects, which mm-hmm. is probably why they have a contract for working on this Air Force base. Yeah, totally. So uh, Darren Duke, who's actually one of the principals at Far Western, oh, was is he? With him. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were just like driving along. 
and they were, <laughs> I think, coming from another site that they were working at, and and it was just the right time of day, and mm-hmm. they had some moisture at some point, and they noticed some what they called ghost tracks. And yeah. It's the kind of thing where if you've ever seen something, you know, like your driveway got rain on it or something like that, and you can see scratches and things yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. It happens when it rains, right? Well, mm-hmm. these footprints were more visible because of recent moisture and just the right time of day. Yeah. So they stopped to check them out. Yeah, that is so cool because I think what we're finding is that if you look for these kind of conditions, you might be able to find more footprints like these and it might help fill Mm -hmm. in some of our prehistory that we don't know about this continent with footprints, which is really cool. Urban noticed they were footprints right away because he'd been really into this kind of stuff and studying it. And again, he was at White Sands, Mm -hmm. helped identify those. They came back the next day and actually, you know, they must have been in contact with the Air Force because Mm -hmm. you can't just start digging on an Air Force base. But they came back the next day and did some, uh, it's cool to just have a ground penetrating radar with you. I know, like they could just like come back the next day with it, like ready to go. (laughs) And now I do some GPR. (laughs) Right. Which like, is like the whole like like stumbled upon it like part of the story. I'm a little yeah. bit like, was it really? Or did they like have an idea yeah. that maybe if they looked here and if they had this equipment available, they might right. find this? Like it does feel a little bit staged almost, but that's okay. I'll give them the ghost track right. story. And it's, and it's not often <laughs> you're able to just immediately dig something up the next day that you find it. Yeah. That's not within your permitted area today. Right. Totally. But being on an Air Force base, they can get different regulations yeah. if you just talk to them and say hey yeah we got this thing we need to act on it now and if you read the article the air force base archaeologist seems very excited and involved yeah. with the discoveries too so i'm guessing that like pushing forward mm-hmm. the excavation of the of this was not too hard to do right right so i was a little skeptical actually when i first read that part about using gpr to actually find more of the more invisible footprints mm-hmm. because ground penetrating radar I mean, it's not a, a great resolution. Right. And yeah. I, I always just assumed it was better with things that are a little deeper. Mm-hmm. But these footprints are not very deep. They're like, they're, you know. They're practically on the surface. Yeah. yeah. But if you know how to finely tune your GPR and you've, and you've got a, a good one and you and more importantly, you know what signature you're looking for. You know what the things that you're looking for, what they look like. And he tuned this working at White Sands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was able to find a lot more. And using GPR to do that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then they also excavated a few of these yeah. just to kind of take them back. Yeah, which is really yeah. cool. So, Well, and if you remember from the White Sands site, the reason they were able to date them the way that they did is because there was like bits of pollen mm-hmm. in between the footprints and they had to have been there at a certain time. And I can't remember the relative dating between the pollen and the footprints allowed them to date them to at least a certain age. Right. So I'm guessing they excavated to hoping to find something like that that they could mm-hmm. use for dating. But it doesn't sound like they were they were actually able to do that in this well, case. Yeah. And maybe some further testing or testing whatever. Will, yeah, yeah. Because something up. the whole point of why these footprints developed mm-hmm. is uh, we'll get to that. Actually, we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there were there were about 88 trackways in total, mm-hmm. you know, so tracks of people walking across. Uh, it's not like everybody was headed out to, you know, the food trucks. It was just uh, <laughs> right. probably multiple events, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Could have even happened over hundreds of years. Right. But either way, um, 88 tracks in total were found, which probably means there's more out there and we just mm-hmm. haven't found them yet. And some of the ones that they excavated, just based on the size and kind of depressions and, and things like that, you can tell that there were adults and then they assumed that there were children as well, ranging from about five to 12 years old. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think they're just guessing on size, right? Right. Like basically that's where they're coming with that, coming up with that conclusion. Yeah. So again, like I said, how do they form? So people were walking either on in shallow water or very wet sand. Mm -hmm. And then that depression that they made with their foot filled in a little bit as they walked. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at some point it was just... You know, nobody really touched it after that. Yeah. And then waters recede and and ebb and flow and things like that. And they just hardened. Yeah. Like that, that muddy layer underneath yeah. just like captured the image or I guess it's not an image when it's like you're impressed into like it. Yeah. Basically yeah. of the footprint. And then it was preserved for us yeah. to find, you know, however many years later. <laughs> right. And because it was watery, th- you, you almost know that there's more than likely some sort of vegetation around, uh-huh. which is how like for the white sands, they were able to find pollen grains and things like that. Yep. And, you know, they could find the same thing here unless they're really done with that and they just didn't find anything. Maybe if they excavate some more, they'll find some stuff. But mm-hmm. it, it's also possible that the preservation wasn't good enough to right. to preserve that. It could have just yeah. dried and crumbled to dust. Yeah, totally. Know, it's just yeah. gone. Yeah. So. This area is interesting because, you know, it's the dry, crazy, like hot, salt flats, salt flats of yeah. Utah. Yeah. Uh, however, it used to be a wetland. Right. And there used to be a watering area about 10,000 years ago. Yeah. As I say, we know. <laughs> we know that it was 10,000 years ago. So yeah. if they needed water to make these footprints, then that would mean that they have to be at least right. 10,000 years old, right? Yeah. Now, given that information, uh, they know they're at least 10,000 years old, but mm-hmm. they're proposing they're probably around 12,000 years old. And I'm guessing that's more likely because of what they know of other sites and cultural yeah. groups in the area. Yeah. That right? makes sense. And, totally. and there's often times when you can tell, especially in the Great Basin, and this isn't the Great Basin, it's on the kind of the other side of the Great Basin, Mm -hmm. but in all these basin-type environments and and where there were massive lakes years and years ago at the end of the Ice Age, you can tell, you can see the the paleo shorelines. Mm -hmm. So they can probably know where these footprints were found about where that paleo shoreline was, given other information, and deduce that it was about 12,000 years ago. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the geologic markers of the area probably do help narrow Mm -hmm. things down a bit, for sure. Yeah, and along those lines they were in that area to begin with to excavate some Ice Age hearths. Yeah. Yeah, that they had found. And so a lot of stuff in the same area. I guess those hearths were only like a half mile from the footprints. So even though you don't necessarily know for sure that they're associated, mm-hmm. it does tell you that there were humans in that area half mile away. And if you know what those date to, it can kind of give you an idea of when the footprints might date to as well. Yeah, and in one of those, they found evidence of human tobacco use, which... Yeah. That kind of surprises me i didn't I know. even know tobacco was used in that area to be i know honest, right that isn't that ago. crazy yeah. i i guess why not right if it's a wetland right. area you could grow green leafy plants then sure yeah <laughs> yeah that was only yeah. about a half mile from the footprints yeah yeah mm-hmm. so anyway one of the big takeaways from this particular discovery of the footprints is that they're they're pretty much solidifying the fact that you can use gpr and some of these other techniques to find these yeah of course gpr is a really slow methodical process mm-hmm. and you can't just gpr the whole desert right so you got to have a reason to go look for them. So you still need some sort of surface expression or some sort of randomized testing Mm -hmm. or something like that in order to find stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I I really wish we had some sort of airborne subsurface detector. Mm -hmm. You know, we we really don't.
don't yet. Mm-hmm. Something we could shoot from a, a drone or an aircraft and just kind of have a GPR effect. Yeah. But do it on a massive scale. Yeah, so, totally. That would be so cool. Yeah. I'm thinking, too, about what you said about the the ancient lake shores and knowing mm-hmm. where they are and when they date to. And you probably could, like, pinpoint certain areas that are more likely to have evidence of humans than yeah. others just based on the geologic context mm-hmm. so maybe that's a that would be like a cool project for a grad student to do or something like that right. to just like pick out lakeshore areas that might have footprints and just go hunting for them that would be really cool there you go there you go there's your next graduate project somebody out there in the world wow wow <laughs> not me yeah yeah okay well i think you know they don't really know exactly what those humans were doing out there but i'm guessing it was a really dark sky and they were just trying to find their astrological signs in the uh in the sky <laughs> oh so maybe not it's took another ten thousand so years for that bad. to happen all right <laughs> we're talking about roman coins on the other side of the break back in a minute Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Keep this conversation going by joining our members only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. Oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 183. And as I mentioned, we're talking about Roman coins and apparently the Zodiac. What what does that mean? Like... (laughs) Like all the Zodiac. Well, yeah. It, I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, they, there was a coin that was found. It's nearly 2,000 years old. And it was minted in Alexandria in Egypt during the reign of Antoninus Pius. And it was discovered in the waters around Haifa in northern Israel. I've been there. So, oh, have you really? Yeah, I've been to Haifa. That's awesome. What was it like? 
It was hot and there were teenagers with machine guns. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's Israel. So that's, yeah. that's how they do there. <laughs> no, actually, Haifa was a really, this was in 1996. It uh-huh. was a really clean, nice town. Yeah. I, I remember we went to the mall because we were in the Navy and just came off of a ship and that was like kind of the only thing to do. <laughs> right. And the mall was weird and, and starkly like clean. Modern. Kind of. Yeah. Modern for yeah. the time, but also very clean and not very many people. Oh, okay. Weird. Yeah. Interesting. I don't remember the day of the week we were there, but. I just kind of imagine places like that are just like filled with ancient ruins, like everywhere. And but... I'm sure they are, but <laughs> I was 18 and didn't care. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. looking for anything like right, that. Right, right, totally. Yeah, so, anyway. Well, this particular coin was part of a hoard of coins, and they were probably deposited by some sort of shipwreck that happened, but they didn't find anything else with the coins, so they don't know any more context other than it was probably a shipwreck that dropped it into the ocean. I'm pretty sure I'm going to start keeping my money in hoards now. <laughs> we don't do that enough anymore. I know. Why is it called a bank account? It should be a bank hoard. My hoard of ones. <laughs> my hoard. Yeah. <laughs> my, I'm call up the bank. I'd like to get information. What's my hoard balance? <laughs> my hoard Your balance. Your what, sir? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, my God. It just makes you wonder. Digital money these days. You know? Like, when the world all goes to hell, there's going to be... trillions and trillions of fictitious dollars sitting in bank accounts that nobody can access anymore Mm -hmm. because the world went to hell. And when we reboot the world, (laughs) that money's not even going to mean anything. doesn't mean anything. It's crazy. But coins, that's the crazy thing about coins. You can find a hoard of coins from 2,000 years ago, and they're still worth money. Because they're probably gold or something else. Yes, there's still money because of the material, but they're also valuable because of of what they are. Yeah, the antiquity. Well, this coin in particular is very well preserved. Yeah. On one side of it, it has an image of Luna, the Roman goddess of the moon. Not your sister's dog? No, not my sister's dog. (laughs) (laughs) And also an image of the zodiac sign for cancer, which is a crab. It's kind of a cute little like image on the coin. You should look at it. Go look at the pictures in the article. And on the other side, we have Antoninus Pius and the inscription for year eight. And what that means is that it was struck in the eighth year of his reign. Yeah. So that's really cool. It's a very exact, exact date. I didn't know that coins like that would have such an exact date on them. And they still do today, too. It's kind of crazy that that, like... It's just a continuing thing that money mm-hmm. just always has a date on it. But and this was one yeah. of a series of coins because it was tied to the zodiac. Yeah, I don't quite understand how this works. Maybe your brain can understand it better than mine. But it says it's part of a series of thirteen coins that portray the twelve zodiac signs, and then the thirteenth would be the complete wheel. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, is it like one single special set of coins, or do all thirteen coins have the same value, but they just have different images on them? Like, how exactly does a series of 13 coins work in that context it could be like our state quarters collect them all yeah that's what i was wondering but like i just can't imagine that i I don't think and i could be wrong on this but i don't think they necessarily backed the coins with uh you know like a like a like a metal like gold or something like that like we do today our coins are worthless right unless they're backed by something that's valuable yeah right so but these coins it was more by weight yeah so i think they would just you know, if there actually are, you know, real, this actually looks bronze, to be honest with you. 
So maybe it did have some sort of symbolic meaning and not an actual an actual value to it. Yeah, but, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it was a series of coins. And here's the question. If this was the eighth year of his reign, did they do this every year? Or was this kind of like a special year? Good question. You know? Good question. Yeah, I'm not really sure. They didn't really go into like the whole history of the coins in that time period mm. in the article and we didn't deep dive it. So maybe that yeah. would be a fun episode sometime to like deep dive the like history of coins and like how that really works, you know? So I didn't know this and you told me I'm a dum dum <laughs> for not knowing this, but apparently astrology was really huge in Rome. I, I didn't realize that. So the ancient world was all about it. Yeah, I guess so. And just quickly the the backstory there is that it originated in Mesopotamia in the third millennium BCE. And it just sort of spread out from there and it was completely entrenched in Roman society Mm -hmm. and it was the most popular divination practice indicating that there were other divination practices other than astrology. Yeah, more than a few. Yeah, but this one was the most popular of them. But my favorite part about it is that the emperors didn't always love astrology because predictions could be used to undermine their authority. Like if people didn't like something that they were doing, mm-hmm. they could just like find a prediction that was against it and and yeah, disagree with the ruler that way. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that, you know, priests and religious folk alike through time when they started kind of understanding stuff and uh-huh. then saying things like, oh, if we have a drought, it's because we didn't do this. Yeah. yeah. We didn't please this person. We right. didn't do that. I mean, that just that just rolls straight up to the top. Mm-hmm. And it's that guy's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a history of rulers and religion not always playing well. Like, look at Henry VIII and splitting off from the Catholic Church, basically, so that he could get a divorce, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's, there's a contentious history between rulers and whatever the religion of the time period was. So, yeah. Yeah, and Antoninus Pius, Pius was one of the most peaceful Roman rulers. That probably means he only killed a few people today <laughs> uh, in the context of Roman rulers. Yeah. And he ruled between a long reign, actually, 138 to 161 CE. And yeah. given that it's on this side of the zero line, it feels like compared to some of the other stuff we talk about, it was just not that long not ago. Not that long ago, right? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> well, yeah. I think he was pretty peaceful because he succeeded Hadrian, who was not peaceful at all. Right. So that- was he peaceful, like, relatively speaking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, that guy was, like, fighting everybody. And apparently he attempted to subjugate Israel. His forces destroyed temples a couple right. times mm-hmm. in a couple places. He also so outlawed circumcision, which is a core practice in Judaism, and man, did they not take well mm-hmm. to that. Like there was uprisings and revolts, and Hadrian managed to to beat them down every time. But it was just a contentious time. So when Pius, you know, became the ruler, it was it was like peace, and he lifted the ban on yeah. circumcision, and there was no more temple burnings. And I guess it really was peaceful considering the previous era. It makes me think when you think about previous eras like that, like. Who was the German chancellor or whoever, like, after Hitler? Mm. You know uh, what I mean? Oh, yeah, right. Like, like how do you follow that, yeah, right? how do you follow that? <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess there's probably nothing you can do wrong, do, No, I mean, if you don't kill a whole lot of people, you're, like, you're probably doing pretty good to yeah, begin with. Yeah. But, yeah, so, anyway. That's just crazy. Mm-hmm. But. Well, I am very intrigued by ancient coins mm-hmm. and... It makes me want to do a bit of a deep dive to see like what other things they have contributed to our like knowledge of the ancient world. It's really yeah. interesting. So, and it's funny given that this is only you know nineteen hundred years old, give or take, mm-hmm. and we still, as much as we know about Roman society, as much as we know about their language and how they spoke and all those things, we still don't 
really know, like like you said, the the coins and how they were minted. And yeah, all this stuff. I mean somebody might know, but it's not like common knowledge. Yeah, like how they were used. Yeah. yeah, we there's still so much to know and so much to learn, even about a culture like the Romans. Right, but now with our next article, there's less that we don't know. Always a good day when that happens. <laughs> Let's learn about some ancient scripts on the other side of the break. What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take and whether it can be broken up, and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www.arcpodnet.com slash motion. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 183. What do you know about linear (laughs) elamite? Elamite. Elamite? Elamite. Yeah. Oh my God. I love this article so, so very much. It feels like so, I don't know, like it's like a breakthrough almost. Mm -hmm. So here's the title. Have scholars finally deciphered a mysterious ancient script? Of course, attention grabbing, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But the answer is like, yeah, maybe they did. So linear Elamite is an obscure script from ancient Iran and it was used by the Elam civilization. They occupied most of southwestern Iran, and they were called the Elamites by neighboring Sumerians. So that's how we know them as that name, because the Sumerians, you know, they have had a written language for a long time that we have deciphered. So that's where that comes from. And their main sort of hub or main city was called Susa. And there's been a lot of excavation there, and we found a lot of things related to the city. So we know about the city. We know a lot is going on there. There's all these tablets that have been found, but the language on the tablets have not been deciphered Mm -hmm. until now. Yeah, they lived around, what, 5,000 years ago? Yeah, it looks like they began around then, and it was located between Sumeria and Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley civilizations in like that Southeast Asia, Pakistan, Northern India type of area. Right. So we don't know that much about them, even though there's been excavations and stuff that have gone on there probably for at least a century or so. But we don't like know a huge amount about them. They were a small civilization, so there's not a whole lot to be found to begin with. And deciphering their language it just would be like 
a really helpful thing. Yeah. And obviously it's clearly very old too. So we would just get a lot more insight into like writing systems and how people use the symbols that they use and, and stuff like that. So that would be really great. And they were part of one of the first groups of cities, so to speak, to even use written symbols. Yeah. It like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it kind of all like started in that Mesopotamia area. Right. <laughs> right. And it was because they, these cities were quickly grow, growing and they needed a way to administer and manage the like the growing population of people that were living in one area together. And, and they right. had they had to do something. I mean, that's what it says. But this all comes down to the only reason we ever develop laws or anything like that is it's like. You have my money, and I can prove it. I know, right? <laughs> Pay me back right now. Yeah. And so, I mean, it really probably is. And you need yeah. ways to document that. You need ways to document, you know, when people are working, when they're mm-hmm. not working. And it's all that sort of management that yeah. drives development in this case. It's like when all of a sudden you're not just responsible for growing your own food and feeding your own family, but like you're doing something and getting paid for that job or yeah. making something and selling that thing. Like all of a sudden you have trade and then you've got to keep track of it. So it just totally mm-hmm. makes sense that in these areas, that's where we see the first writing systems develop. Yeah. In Sumeria, that is the oldest one, of course, I think that has ever been found. And other Mesopotamian civilizations as well. But I think Sumerians are the the oldest. Yeah, and they used around 3100 BCE uh, what we call wedge-shaped marks on wet clay. Mm -hmm. uh, And the name of that is cuneiform. Right. Almost everybody's probably heard of that, to be honest. Yeah, and if you imagine... It's actually kind of cool the way that it happens. They used reeds. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the shape of a reed, like a grass reed that you find in like a like a waterway. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, the shape of the end of the reed, if you break it off, it's kind of got this like really oh, tight can... elliptical, if not oval shape. Yeah, I can totally envision what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. And then you just like you put it into the wet clay, and the way that they would either jam it in like that or jam it in and twist and uh-huh. do different things. That's how they would make their symbols. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they used both symbols and logograms. And logograms are images, right? So I think what that means is like there's symbols for the different sounds in words sometimes, but then there's also like just an image which represents something specifically. Wait, they didn't develop complex math too? Like logarithms? Just logograms? <laughs> I mean, maybe. No. <laughs> it seems like these guys were pretty amazing, but. <laughs> So the cuneiform script, it was later adapted for many of the societies in this area. Hittite, Akkadians, they all used sort of a version of the Sumerian cuneiform for their written languages as well. I think we talked about something Akkadian in one of our episodes. We, we did. It was yeah. part of a timelines or something, I think. Yeah. yeah. Write it and let us know. Bonus points. <laughs> yeah. Right. So cuneiform has been translated for a really long time, since the 19th century, and it's offered insights into economics, structure, the, the people in general that were using the script. Just like you said, like they had to have a way to keep track yeah. of all this stuff. And now that we know how they were keeping track of that stuff, it, it just gives us so much more insight into mm-hmm. what, what life was like back then. It's, it's really helpful to have the language <laughs> deciphered. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. In Elam... Archaeologists found tablets in the like main city area of Susa that were just as old as the Sumerian tablets that have had previously yeah. been found. But the script is totally different. It's clearly a completely different language. And it's not been deciphered until potentially now. <laughs> yeah. And the earliest ones that we have of, of this new it, language, yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's called Proto-Elamite. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like the early one. Right? Yeah. And apparently that fell out of fashion at some point and was abandoned. And I'm guessing 
one of the reasons for that might be is just common languages, common communication forms. Probably, you know, yeah. somebody was using something else that just made more sense. Yeah, definitely. Know? And like to have an eight hundred year gap. I mean, they were still communicating it in some way in mm-hmm. in between there. So it might just be that we haven't found whatever it is that fills in that gap too. So right. gaps, I don't think, are this like horrible thing that some people might make them out to be it just means that we haven't filled in the hole yet but not that there was nothing there yeah and what you're talking about the 800 year gap when the proto elamite fell out was when linear elamite was developed yeah yeah exactly again it wasn't just like somebody woke up some one morning and said you know what we haven't been like writing anything for 800 years let's develop a new yeah now let's do it yeah (laughs) so it really is it probably developed over time Mm -hmm. and whoever was Probably more than likely the the more wealthy or well known you know merchants or whoever or even leaders mm-hmm. probably said we're going to use this now. Oh, totally. You know, That's always how need, it goes, right? Yeah, we need a common frame of reference here, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to bet we just don't have evidence for that yet. So there there might not be. There's probably isn't an 800 year gap between proto elamite and linear elamite where nothing was used. Right. It just either evolved slowly into that, and now we can see the change, mm-hmm. or. We just haven't seen all the pieces to the puzzle yet. Totally. Yeah. So one really interesting thing, though, is that they have found more than or archaeologists in general over the last hundred years or so have found more than 1600 proto Elamite inscriptions or tablets. Yeah. However, they have only found about 43 of the linear Elamites. Crazy. Isn't that insane? So, like, it does make you wonder what was going on in that gap. And then why are there only so few of the linear Elamites? But you just can't explain everything, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So neither language, obviously, has been deciphered until now, potentially. And this is where French archaeologist Francois Desset comes in. He believes he has deciphered linear Elamite. Yeah. And now you might be wondering, why would he choose the one where there's only 43 tablets to decipher rather than the one where there's 1,600 of them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the reason is because he, he basically gained access to a private collection of silver vessels with inscriptions on them. These vessels are as you might guess, of suspect provenance <laughs> because they are in a private collection and he there, there's no more mentioned about that. And like, yeah. I think probably even their age and authenticity might be a little bit in question, which is one of the critiques of this, of this work is that mm-hmm. the provenance is suspect. So how can we be sure that they are what they are? So that's a big red flag, although not terrible, I don't think. Yeah. He believes that they date to around 2000 BCE, and they are basically like the Rosetta Stone jackpot of for linear Elamite yeah. because they have royal names on them in both linear Elamite and the Sumerian cuneiform, which of course has already been translated. Yeah. So we already know what those symbols are and what they mean, and it tells us what the linear Elamite ones mean because they're they're associated so he you know which one it is which name it is and then from that name those names they can unravel like the rest of the language from there and one of the cool things with about how they actually translated these things is by looking at the names of kings yeah and that's yeah. actually how they did the translations of hier- hieroglyphics on the rosetta, on the rosetta stone, stone right because it was known for quite some time that egyptians put the names of leaders in uh, an oval they called it a cartouche oh okay yeah so everything within that was the name of a king okay and once you really learn through other means what the names of kings were and and queens for that matter in mm-hmm. certain areas and and you've got some pronunciation you can start to 
you can start pull to kind of pull that out. Symbols yeah. and the sounds and yeah. like find them in other places. And then right. through contextual clues, probably you can start like putting together the language. Yeah. And, and by doing this, they learned a number of symbols because mm-hmm. people's names have, you know, you get different names and they have, they contain similar elements of the, uh, of the language. Mm-hmm. And they said they could read 72 linear Elamite symbols, which is more than 96% of those that are known about right now. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Just by doing that. Yeah. Uh, it's really difficult because we don't really have context and we don't know what they sounded like because right. like nobody speaks that language exactly <laughs> but yeah aside from that yeah i mean there's still so much more work to be done yeah. here and yeah. and there's a lot of skepticism and i think rightly so like you do need to have skepticism when a brand new discovery like mm-hmm. this happens or a brand new translation right and that's part of the skepticism is that they haven't fully translated any other tablets or anything like that. There's still a lot more like on the ground, like just hunched over inscriptions of tablets kind of yeah. kind of translation that needs to happen to verify that what they think is true is actually true. And so, yeah, there's just more time to go for that. There needs to be peer reviewed papers and things need to be published, papers given, all that kind of stuff that goes along with a big discovery like this. So another interesting thing that Deset says is that he is arguing that this is a symbol language only, no logograms like cuneiform and hieroglyphics. And because of that, it would make it the oldest known writing system to not incorporate logograms. Mm -hmm. Previously, Phoenicians and the alphabet they used was thought to be the oldest at 1100 BCE. So this pushes it back another like 800 years or so i think around there yeah and the interesting thing about that is that's that's leading to more of an alphabet like we know today because we also don't use logograms in english they're all they're all it's all symbols right yeah yeah Yeah, you should totally go look at the pictures Mm -hmm. in the article because like it really is truly symbols now they're not symbols at all like anything that we use in our alphabet obviously but they're not images not really you don't see any eyes like you do in hieroglyphics and and all the other kind of symbols that that means something more than just a sound in the other languages. They're just straight symbols. Well, it makes me wonder if this was maybe a more advanced form of something that we, again, haven't found yet. Mm-hmm. Because like hieroglyphics, yeah, there's a lot of images that you can really tell. Oh, that looks like an eye. That looks like a bird. Right. Something like that. Right. But there's a cursive written form of hieroglyphics that develops. Oh, yeah. And that starts to get more into less symbolic and more uh, less logogrammic, yeah. I guess. And, and, and more, more symbolic. Symbol. Yeah. And, you know, some of these shapes and things they have here. Yeah, we might not know what they are. True. But they could have developed from more defined shapes into these more abstract representations of yeah. real things. So yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. Yeah. Well, and, and it's arguments like that that is why there's just a lot of skepticism about yeah. that claim in general. And I think there just needs to be a lot more research before it can be mm-hmm. said for sure that that's accurate. So, yeah. Another interesting point that Deset makes is that he thinks that the Proto-Elamite language is actually a predecessor of the Linear Elamite. And there's a, a lot of people who feel like they are not related and that Mm -hmm. the earlier one fell out of favor. There was an 800 year gap and then something new came up in its place. But he thinks that they're related because he sees some similarities between the symbols and stuff like that. But the earlier one does use logograms, whereas it looks like the later one does not. Again, there's just a lot of like unknowns around this and it's just very early days in this translation. I think a lot more work and research needs to happen so mm-hmm. it could rewrite the history of writing systems though if if it is true every 
archaeological discovery of the century rewrites <laughs> Rewrite everything something. we know. <laughs> Crazy. Well, what's interesting about this is that we've known about these languages. Yeah. We've known how old they, they are. That's not news to anybody. It's just that we couldn't decipher them. Mm-hmm. And when you can't decipher something, it just puts this big question mark on top of it. And you can't work it into like the the timeline with everything right. else, you know? I mean, you can, but you can't really because you don't know what they say. So it is really like a huge thing if these translations are as accurate as Dissette is saying they are. So, yeah. yeah. And I don't know about rewriting the history of writing systems, but it could push back, you know, like like they said, the earliest symbolic language. Symbolic language, you know, yeah. Which would be big, but yeah, also... Yeah. A bigger thing that I hope we find someday in the future, uh, man, getting into like linguistics and writing would be super fun if I had to I know. do it all over again. It seems very yeah. interesting. Because I would yeah. want to look at parallels and start looking around, you know, different areas and say, well, did this actually, are elements of this language seen in other languages? And, you know, because, you know, as people get conquered and, and people move and trade, that elements from some languages move into others, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just... It's just how it happens. Yeah, totally. I mean, we've got in English lots of words that have been ripped off from other languages. Yeah, you know? yeah, it definitely happens. So. And with the close association with Sumerians and the mm-hmm. cuneiform language, I mean, you got to guess that there was some crossover there. Like that certainly could have happened. So yeah. it kind of muddies the waters when you're talking about who's the earliest and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Because the proto-Elamite is contemporaneous with the ancient Sumerian and the earliest the earliest examples mm-hmm. that we have of it. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see if there is crossover between them. Well, and there was a lot of trade going back and forth yeah. back then. You know yeah. that there's more than likely the case that everybody, if if not smoke, spoke similar languages, they mm-hmm. at least understood each other. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, probably developed as trade became more heavy between these groups, right, mm-hmm. as you move through time. I, I mean... Yeah, languages were were just blending, and so were. were writing systems more than likely because it doesn't do you any good to have a contract or something written in some a language you don't understand. Yeah, totally. You could say yeah. anything, right? Yeah. Well, so. and that is true because the both of these languages that we're talking about, both Elamite languages, fall out of favor at some point, and cuneiform takes over. Yeah. So that definitely does happen eventually. So it's interesting that they maintained enough yeah. autonomy long enough that they had their own language, but but yeah, it definitely didn't last forever, and cuneiform became the champion of the area for sure (laughs) yep all right well i think that's it for now yeah definitely we'll be back next week with something crazy and i don't even know where we're gonna be yeah (laughs) we have no idea so you never know what you're gonna get from us these days we're doing so much traveling it's it's just you know a new a new thing a new party every week (laughs) yeah and speaking of a party let's celebrate the new members we've had in the last couple of weeks we've actually had probably uh, seven or eight new members in the last just few days actually oh that's exciting thanks if you're a listener to the archaeology show thanks for that don't forget to check the slide channel for ad-free versions of these shows uh links to those and then you know anything else that we have on there and conversations with our other members yeah definitely and we will put some time into more bonus episodes it's coming it'll happen and and just a a plug out there you know we have a lot of listeners from the united states our 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 second sort of highest group of listeners is from the uk and then our third is from australia and i don't think we have any australian members from australia like (laughs) i i know there's at least a couple of people in australia that are listening to this show but as of yet i'm pretty sure we don't have any members from australia so arcpodnet.com forward slash members and you can find out so wow calling out the australians i'm just saying saying somebody's got to lead the charge oh my gosh all right we'll see you next week bye
Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. And it was used by the Elam The Elam syllabus. <laughs> This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.